As we open God's word together, let's ask him to bless it to us. Let us pray. Father in heaven, make us to know your ways and teach us your paths. Lead us in your truth and teach us, for you are the God of our salvation. Lord, you are good and upright, therefore you instruct sinners in the way. You lead the humble in what is right and teach the humble his way. So instruct, lead, and teach us by your spirit through your word now so that we may see Jesus and hear us, for we pray in his name. Amen. Please be seated. And please turn with me in God's word to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53. And we'll read the first nine verses in connection with what we read from Lord's Day 15. And to think about the suffering servant as presented to us in these familiar words from Isaiah 53. So we'll read the first nine verses together. And let's pay careful attention for this is God's own word. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of the dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, When with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Thus far, the reading of God's word may bless it to us um, as I mentioned, I had little notice that I was going to be preaching uh, this evening. I found out yesterday morning, and I was uh, still finishing up my work on my morning sermon, and it was a good time to be reflecting on what I could preach on on this kind of short notice. And always you have as a pastor the things that you would like to say about a passage that end up on the cutting room floor because there's not enough time. Um, even a sermon, I don't know how long the sermon ran today, you can tell me later if it was long, but even despite that, there are things that you want to say, that you want to talk about, that you don't, you're just not able to get to. Um, And one of those things that really struck me was uh, to think about how the passage talked about this morning, how we're called to store up God's word in our heart, and really to have that word to carry around with us, and how our Lord Jesus really typified that in his own life where we could see him calling on God's word 
in, in not the easy situations of life, but when he was very hard-pressed, he was still able to reflect on God's Word and to have that treasury of the Word in his heart that would come out uh, when he needed it. And, you know, we treasure up the Word also, I think, as Christians, we try to, to learn from God's Word. We're always impressed when we meet people who have a, a vast knowledge of the Word of God at their fingertips. I think we always wish we were more like them. Um, but we recognize that they didn't just, you know, tumble into the world that way. They've done a lot of reading and work uh, to, to know God's Word and to store it up in their hearts. And I thought, you know, what we always can do when we store up the, God's Word in our heart is we can always recognize how the blessings of God are ours in Christ and how all the sufferings that God's Word talks about, He carries for us so that we don't have to go through. But how difficult it must have been for Him to be going through life and when he came to passages like Proverbs 2, and when he would hear that word preached, how that would have come to him as he thought about what awaited him in the future, right? To, to have a sense of what he has come into the world to do and to read passages like our, our text this morning that ends with Proverbs 2.22, but the wicked will be cut off from the land and the treacherous will be rooted out of it. I was sort of haunted this week when I was studying, when I came across a commentator that said that verse talks about excommunication by extermination. Um, and I thought, you know, we can read that and say we avoid that because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. Uh, but when he read that, he knew that that's what awaited him at the end of his life. He knew that that's what he had come to do, to suffer for his people. Um, his life was a life of suffering, um, that he might set us free. So although I know the suffering of the Lord Jesus is a heavy topic uh, for a Sunday evening, we want to see how he has suffered and to rightly understand his suffering so that we might be comforted to know that we've been set free from that suffering by what he endured. And so I just want to make the three questions in Lord's Day 15, the structure of our sermon this evening, and just ask the questions that the catechism asks. What does it mean that Christ suffered? Why did he suffer under Pontius Pilate? And why is it important to confess that he was crucified? Um, all of these important for our salvation. What does it mean that Christ suffered? Well, we confess that during his whole life on earth, but especially at the end, Christ sustained in body and soul the wrath of God against the sin of the whole human race. But the Catechism rightly draws our attention to the fact that Jesus did not suffer merely at the end of his life. Uh, his whole life was a life of suffering. That really is communicated powerfully for us in Isaiah's prophecy. Um, it's, it's hard to read that, uh, what Isaiah records in Isaiah 53.3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. His whole life was a life of suffering under the curse. And why is that important for God's people to know that? That his whole life was a life of suffering, not just at the end. Well, it's important because it reminds us that he has really entered into the experience of his people. Because if we think about it, our whole lives are lived under the curse. Our whole lives are lived under the reality of being broken people in a fallen world. Um, it's an everyday reality that the curse has brought 
upon us. That was the tragedy of what Adam was told about the curse that had come on his work for the rest of his life. What did God say to him in Genesis 3, 17 to 19? And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. All the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Part of the the terrible nature of the curse is it affects all of life. How long will that cursed ground afflict Adam? The rest of your days. Until you go into the ground. That was the reality that the curse brought into the world. And that's why it's important to understand that the Lord Jesus Christ entered that experience of his people. It was awful for him to suffer at the end of his life on the cross. But he entered into that experience that we must endure of of living life in this world. The whole of life in this world. To understand really what that is. That Jesus can sympathize with sinners. And he did that having given up the fellowship he enjoyed from all eternity at the right hand of his father. He had known a world not like this. And chose to enter into a world like this. Came to live life under the curse. Took upon himself the weakness of our fallen nature. And experienced all those things in his real human body that humans experience throughout the generations. We read in the Gospels that he was hungry, that he was thirsty, that he was exhausted, that he was sad, that he was grief-stricken, that he was poor. Um, To think that the one who created the whole world didn't have a place to lay his head. Uh, Was born to poor parents who couldn't afford to bring an offering to redeem him that that most people could, had to bring birds to redeem him because they couldn't afford the greater animal. He entered into the experience of suffering in this world. The whole of his life lived under the curse, just as the whole of our lives are lived under the curse. Um, He lived a life just like ours, except he knew no sin. That's why it's significant that he didn't suffer just at the end of his life. He understood what it was to live life in this world. Our our form for infant baptism has a beautiful prayer after the baptism, praying for our children, asking God to give our children faith. And the prayer is so that they would be able to stand before the judgment seat of God without fear. It's, It's a wonderful prayer. It's our heartfelt prayer for all the children of the church who are baptized. But it's always interesting how the old form described this life. Um, you know, it's always such a blessed occasion when we baptize a covenant child. Um, sometimes we can think that, you know, because we're reformed, we have to add some down note somewhere. Um, and the form says, as part of that prayer, when they leave this life, which is nothing but a constant death. Um, and it's capturing something of what it is to live life under the curse. That this life is nothing but a constant death. Um, from which we need to be relieved. 
And what a thing it is to have a Savior who understands what it is to live in this life. To live the whole of his life as we live the whole of our lives under the curse. He suffered not just at the end of his life, but all of his life. He suffered all of his life as we suffer, and he suffered at the end of his life like none of us will suffer. We read about that especially at the end of his life. He suffered the torment and agony of body and soul. We see him as he's approaching the cross, experience the torment of his soul in Gethsemane, uh, telling his disciples, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful unto death, um, being under so much pressure and strain that he sweats great drops of blood in the garden. Uh, he, he's suffering himself already, even as he's approaching the end of his life, and he has to suffer it, in a sense, really alone. All of his disciples begin to disappoint and desert him, right? His three hand-picked disciples that he asked to come and watch and pray with him in that most needful hour, they can't stay awake and pray for him, right? We, we always talk as a, as a group of Christians how, how encouraging it is to know that fellow Christians are praying for us in our difficulty, um, and what a thing it would be to say, you know, I'm, I'm in terrible distress. Would you pray for me and find that the very people you've asked to pray for you are not praying for you, um, are, are sleeping when you need them the most? Um, they disappointed him in that way. One of his 12 hand-picked disciples betrayed him into the hands of wicked men. One of his disciples that promised he would never desert him, even if everyone else deserted him, couldn't stand up to the questioning of a, of a teenage girl about who he was and what he was about. And Peter denied the Lord. And his disciples scattered and abandoned him. And leading up to his crucifixion, wicked men falsely accused him. They beat him. They spit on him. They whipped him. They mocked him. They insulted him. And finally, they killed him. Um, killed him on the cross, which was one of the worst ways to die. And the question that should prompt all of that, the reason that we highlight all of that, that suffering, is to really press home the question, why did he do it? Who would volunteer for this? Who would come into the world knowing that this was the end for which he came? Why? Why would he endure this suffering? Um, he had to endure it not for himself. Right? He knew no sin. He was not suffering for his own sin. When we suffer, we understand why we're suffering. We suffer for the original sin of our human race, and we suffer for the actual sins we commit. Our misery is our own. It's of our own making. We've made this world what it is by our sin. We suffer on account of what we've done. Why did Jesus suffer? Not on the account of what he had done, but for what we had done. He suffered all of his life, but especially at the end, this he did in order that by his suffering as the only atoning sacrifice, he might deliver us, body and soul, from eternal condemnation and gain for us God's grace, righteousness, and eternal life. Um, Herman Vitzius said that Jesus died so that he could reconcile elect sinners to God and restore them to divine favor. 
He came into a broken world filled with fallen people that he might repair it and restore them to favor with God. And he did that at the price of his own suffering. That's what his suffering meant. That's what all this suffering meant. It meant that by this suffering, he was reconciling the world to God. He was reconciling that brokenness to his father. Right? 2 Corinthians 5.19 says, In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Or we think of what Paul says in Romans 5, 8 through 10. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. He suffered for our brokenness that he might restore what was broken. That he might reconcile sinners to his father. And there are several elements to that that we want to take note of so that we understand what he accomplished by this suffering. That he satisfies the wrath of God against all of our sins. All that he suffered there, all that he did there, satisfied God's justice against sin. Satisfied God's holy justice and His holy anger against that which is wrong. We all experience that when we hear some story or read it in the news. And we see something that's really wrong. And it makes us angry that it's wrong. Um, God is a holy God. The Psalms tell us He feels indignation every day over the wrong that's done in the world. And God satisfied His wrath. By his son, satisfied his wrath against the sin of his people. All of that indignation he had been bearing against the sins of his elect, he poured it out on his son, who willingly died there as our substitute. When people have come and called that kind of idea of a substitution sacrifice, cosmic child abuse, You have to be reminded that Jesus knew exactly what he was doing coming into the world. He knew exactly what he was volunteering to do by coming into the world. He came into the world to take the punishment of his people on himself so that they would avoid it. This is a knowing agreement he made with his father before time began. To come into the world and to redeem his people even at this cost knowing that the wrath of his father would need to be satisfied in his body and soul. He was willing to do that. He was willing to come and to be a savior, to die as the sacrifice for our sins. That's what all of the Old Testament sacrifices were pointing forward to, the one who would come and really lay down the death that would take away the wrath of God, that would put out the altar fire of God's anger against sin. You know, the the burning altar was always burning in the midst of the camp in the Old Testament. You could always see smoke rising from the altar. And what was that always reminding people? We serve a holy God. There have to be sacrifices morning and evening for a people like us to live with a holy God in our midst. 
It was all pointing forward and asking the question, is there an offering that can ever be satisfied, that can ever put that fire out, that can ever stop that altar from burning? And the answer is the cross of Jesus Christ. That's what puts out the altar fire of God's wrath against the sins of his people. It makes satisfaction for sin. He dies for our sin. Isaiah is so clear about that. Isaiah 53, 6, We all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's what John the Baptist was enabled to see by the illumination of the Holy Spirit when he saw Jesus coming. He said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. How does he take it away? By dying. By dying. By being the sacrifice. By receiving the sins on himself and dying in the place of his people. He knew exactly what he was coming to do. And he came to do it in obedience to his Father's will. That's why we talk about the life and the death of our Lord Jesus Christ, all in terms of obedience to his Father. Maybe you've heard people refer to the active obedience of Christ and the passive obedience of Christ. All it means is that when Christ came into the world, he obeyed everything that his Father asked him to do. He was actively obeying, obeyed all of God's law perfectly, which is the condition for obtaining eternal life. And his passive obedience, where he suffered and paid the penalty of sin, discharging, excuse me, all of our debt by his death on the cross. We have to understand the, the glory of what the catechism testifies to us is that he has offered that atoning sacrifice. That sacrifice that really does turn away the wrath of God from his people. He receives it on himself and he extinguishes it. There is no more wrath. It's been poured out. It's been satisfied. And that's what we have to know as Christians. There is no more wrath of God against our sins anymore. It's been poured out on Christ. He has satisfied the wrath of God. The Father does not look on us as a wrathful Father anymore. Because the Lord has paid everything we owed. He has satisfied the justice of His Father. He has secured every blessing that comes to us by his death. We need to understand what his suffering has accomplished. That's what it has accomplished for God's people. Think of that the next time you have those dark nights of the soul when you're worried that God is really still angry with you. Think about the cross of Jesus Christ. And remember that that's where God's anger against your sin was poured out. Because Jesus went there and said, be angry with me, not with them. I take their sin on myself. Be angry with me for them. And give them what you would give to me. Say of them what you say about me. Here's my beloved son. Here's my beloved daughter with whom I'm well pleased. That's the glory of what he's accomplished by his death. So then why is it an important part of our confession that we confess that he suffered under Pontius Pilate? Have you ever wondered as we confess that in the Apostles' Creed why that rat gets a mention? Um, of all the, you can write that in your notes, boys and girls. He's a rat. 
Um, he's an unjust judge, right? He's the worst kind of political operator. Um, he's only concerned for his own skin. Um, he stands in a long line of politicians that are most concerned about covering themselves more than anything else. Um, he's a judge that comes and he declares Christ innocent five times before he condemns him to the worst kind of death he could condemn him to. Uh, there, were, there are debates that we still can see from the Roman Senate over whether the death by crucifixion ought to be abolished because it was just such a heinous way to die. Um, and so what function does he serve? Why do we mention him in the creed that only mentions a few people? Jesus, Mary, and Pontius Pilate. Why does he get mentioned? What's the importance? Well, it's first important. He's important as a judge to establish the innocence of Jesus. What does the judge, who's, who, who Jesus' case comes before his bench, is on his docket, what does that judge say over and over again? He's innocent. I don't know what you want me to do. He's not guilty of anything. He's done nothing wrong. Right? Uh, having, having been a lawyer in my, in my former life, I wouldn't like my chances as a prosecutor if I had the judge saying over and over again, this guy's innocent. I don't know what you want me to do. There's nothing to charge him with. Um, he says this over and over again. That's the function he serves. That's the reminder we have. Here is an earthly judge who didn't work for the religious establishment, who worked against them, who was a civil judge, and when the case came before him, he looked at it and said, this man's innocent. He's done nothing wrong. Um, you know, he even has his wife sending letters to him saying, don't have anything to do with this righteous man. This is a case you don't want to be involved in. Right? That's why he stands out. He testifies to the fact that this man is innocent. And this man, though innocent, what happens to him? He's condemned. He dies. And what, what function then does Pilate serve in history? He serves to remind us all that Jesus did not die for his own sins. He did not die for his own guilt. And theologically, what is the importance of that? If he didn't die for his own guilt, who did he die for? Whose guilt did he die for? He died for us. Right? So that innocent, though innocent, he might be condemned by an earthly judge and so free us from the severe judgment of God that was to fall on us. Right? 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He died as an innocent man, condemned, and condemned he went to death without protest. Um, that's a significant thing for Isaiah, that when he was condemned... When he was taken away by oppression and judgment, he opened not his mouth. He didn't protest his death. He went willingly. It's not just a, a, you know, a, a tidbit that Isaiah includes. God doesn't waste his breath when he speaks. And what is he saying to us here? 
He went without protest. He didn't try to excuse his innocence. He went willingly to die for his people. He accepted the verdict that should have been our verdict so that he could be condemned and die in our place. That's why he didn't open his mouth. And in not opening his mouth, he submitted himself to an unjust execution. That's Isaiah's testimony. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? He went to die for the sins of his people. He didn't protest his due process when he was taken out to die. Because again, he was saying by his death, I stand innocent but condemned so that I can die for the guilty. He dies not for his own sin, but for ours. He is cut off out of the land of the living. He experiences what Proverbs 22, 2.22 talked about. The wicked will be cut off from the land and the treacherous will be rooted out of it. That's why it's significant that he died on the cross. That he died by crucifixion and not by some other way. You know, sometimes we, we play up the crucifixion and we've all heard sermons and, I'm sorry to say, I've preached sermons where we spend all this time talking about the horrors of what, what it is to be crucified. Um, we, we all know when that's coming as a congregation. That we, we hear, oh no, I, I, can't, I can't go through this again. I can't hear about the terrible scourging and all the way and how you die when you're being crucified. Could we be spared all of that horror? But you see, all of that really only touches on the suffering of the body. It has nothing to do with the suffering of the soul that Christ's crucifixion represented. Or, the, or what it represented as an Old Testament covenant principle. Because what did crucifixion represent in the law of God? It represented a cursedness. It represented a cursedness. It's significant that he was crucified, not just because it's a terrible way to die, but because God had said, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. It's significant that he was crucified because by this death, I am convinced that he shouldered the curse which laid on me. Since death by crucifixion was cursed by God. The form of his death speaks of the extent of his accursedness. Not just the worst form of human punishment, but a sign of divine judgment. From a divine standpoint, the cross represented accursedness. That extreme penalty of being brought away from the land. No one's exactly sure why hanging on a tree was such a, a sign of being a cursedness. Some people have said, well, the curse is connected with the fruit that was taken from the tree, and to be hanged on the tree represents some connection with that. Maybe that is. Some people have said it's to be lift, lifted up off of the land and exposed, and so there's some sense in which even the land is sort of rejecting you. There's a lot of speculation. I don't think anybody knows. What we know is the clear testimony of Scripture. Cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. It's a measure of the curse that Jesus died this way. 
And for Paul, it's an intensely important theological point that he brings up in Galatians 3, 13, and 14. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. He says that accursedness of Christ becomes the assurance of God's people. That all of the accursedness that laid on us has been taken up by him. That he has redeemed us from the curse by becoming the curse for us. It's another way that God in His grace and in His mercy comes to His people and says, you need to be really sure that in the cross of Jesus Christ, there is nothing left between us. The sin has been paid for. The wrath has been poured out. The curse has been satisfied and reversed by the death of Christ. There is nothing more left between us. His accursedness should function as our assurance. If he has been cursed in our place, then there is no curse for us. It's been lifted. He's taken it away. That's why we, we, we talk about these sober things, to recognize that Christ has lifted all of these things off of us so that we might live. That's why we know that Isaiah 53 doesn't end in chapter in chapter 53 with verse 9, it goes on. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring and prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. And by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Um, That's why this, this verse poses such a problem for someone looking for merely an earthly messiah. Because who could die and yet prolong his days? Who could die and yet ever live to make intercession for his people? This has to be the Lord Jesus Christ. Only he can offer the sacrifice and live. And offer the sacrifice and make his people live. We, we look at these things so that we might soberly address them and seriously see how God takes sin. How seriously he takes the curse to see his justice done, and then to glorify his name that he has satisfied that justice and found a way to be both just and the justifier of those who look to Jesus Christ. So we can glorify the God as the God who has found a way to punish all sin and wickedness and not leave any of it unpunished and yet also found a way to be merciful to sinners and to set his people free. We have to understand the severity of what happened on the cross so we understand the glory of what God has done for us by sending us the only one who could do this for us, 
who is willing to come and do this for us, to go through that, that we might live with him. Um, What glory we owe to our God for this salvation, for being a God who will in no wise clear the guilty and yet is willing to show steadfast love and mercy and to forgive sinners of their sins. God has opened the fountain of divine grace to us in his Son. We owe everything to the suffering and death of Jesus. That's why we need to keep that constantly placarded before our minds and hearts as God's people. Um, God knows that we are quick to forget the, the primary thing we need to know. So what does he tell us? Come together and hear Christ preached and preach Christ crucified as the hope for sinners. And come to the table and break the bread and drink of the cup and remember that life that he gave. That he suffered his own body to die and his blood to be poured out as a sacrifice for sin and as true food and drink for your eternal life. Look to the cross of Christ as the only hope of your salvation. And in our baptism, he does the same thing. Look at the water to remind you that it's the blood and the spirit of Jesus Christ that washes you and cleanses you from your sin. God knows that we are a people quick to turn away from the one thing we need to keep constantly before our hearts and minds. That Jesus dying for us on the cross is our hope of forgiveness of sins and eternal life. We can never get away from there if we want to properly understand the glory of what God has done for us and if we want to have the proper motivation to serve Him. Duty is a poor master. Gratitude is a much better motivator for godly living. And when we think of all that Jesus has done for us, And what he did for us, particularly at his death. How that should fill us with a desire to serve him in gratitude for what he's done for us by his suffering and death. That knowing exactly what he was getting into, he died anyway. So that he might open that fountain of divine grace and blessing to his people. We owe his suffering for everything we enjoy. Uh, One commentator put it this way, and I'll conclude with this. He said, whatever you receive in this or a future life that is good and desirable, you deserve because Christ suffered. If you have a home in which you dwell joyfully with a beloved spouse and pleasant children, if you are clothed with decent apparel, if you are supplied with wholesome and delicious food, If when sick, neither the attention of friends nor pleasant cordials are wanting. If when fatigued in body or perplexed in mind, you can recline upon a soft couch. And if you enjoy all these comforts, not in the same way with men of this world, but as the fruits of the love of God, for this you are entirely indebted to a suffering Christ. Who for your sake wandered as a poor man without a home and was suspended naked on a cross received vinegar and gall to drink, and hung on an accursed tree, destitute of every comfort and enduring the most excruciating pains, his hands and his feet being pierced with iron nails. If you are soothed with the consolations of the Holy Spirit, if you exult in afflictions, if you have free and abundant access to the throne of grace, if you have a quiet conscience, if you venture to hope for heaven itself and life everlasting, 
All this, too, is owing to no other cause than the suffering of Christ. That's true. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. To our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we do thank you for the suffering Savior who endured what we endure in this life and far beyond it, that he might set us free from sin. We pray that we might reflect on his cross and remember that he died so that we might live, that he was cursed so that we might be blessed, that he was cut off from the land of the living that we might live forever. When we worry about whether there still is something between us and you, Father, bring us back again to the foot of the cross and help us to see our Savior and all that he has given to set us free. And may the vision of what he has done remind us again and again how we have been set free from all these things, how he died so that he could reconcile us to you. And you sent him so that you could reconcile yourself to the world. May we trust in that reconciliation. May we believe in the saving work of our Lord Jesus Christ and look to our suffering Savior as our hope of glory. And hear us, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's take up our psalters, and as the song of response turned to number 152, safely through another week, we'll stand and sing all the verses of 152.
beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Lift up your hearts to the Lord now and receive his blessing. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good, that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. People of God, go in peace.